0: Buddy, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you're listening to this. I've been having an interesting week. I uh, had to break up a fight at the movie theater the other day. This is the first time that that's happened, but it's not that surprising because we're screening a film that always kind of attracts the wrong element. Who is during the film Loving Vincent, a hand-painted, animated biography of the artist Vincent Van Gogh. These post-impressionist movies always attract some unsavory characters. I wasn't there for the beginning of the fight, and actually I'm pretty sure it was just uh, somebody was talking and then the other person hit them, which, not cool, but I also don't talk in movie theaters. But in my mind, the way that the fight started was... Post-Impressionism, man, that's some fucking bullshit. That's not even really an artistic movement, it's just a goddamn time period. And then somebody responded by going, You son of a bitch. Well, it's true that Post-Impressionism is a large banner which houses a number of diverse artistic styles. They were all directly motivated by the opticals of the Impressionist movement. That's a load of bullshit. You can't tell me that Van Gogh wouldn't have been Van Gogh and Gauguin wouldn't have been Gauguin if they hadn't been building on the works of Monet and Cassatt and all of those assholes. Fuck you! Anyway, that's how I like to believe that the fight started, even though neither of the people involved sounded at all like that. And probably weren't from New England. But, a boy can dream, can't he? Anyway, I've decided that we shouldn't have any more post-impressionist films. It's... Just not worth the violence. Thank you for indulging me. Anyway, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's Synopsis Rhyme is submitted by Brad Reed. At the writing hack, we say, Now top this. At the biting bunny, we say, Yo, hop this. At the farting jerk, we say, Hey, stop this. And at the starting show, we say, synopsis. Thanks, Brad. Defenders, number 25. July, 1975. The Serpent Sheds Its Skin. Written by Steve Gerber. Draughted by Sal Buscema. Inked by Jack Abel. Lettered by Ray Holloway. Colored by Petra G. And edited by Len Wein. Defensive lineup. Doctor Strange. Nighthawk. Valkyrie. The Incredible Hulk. Clea, Yellowjacket, Luke Cage, Daredevil, Son of Satan. Previously in The Defenders. Oh boy. <clears throat> Billionaire-do-well bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond had a bad time at a party because business assholes wanted to say business words at him, and despite owning a vast corporate empire, Kyle hated business stuff and mostly ignored it, allowing his employee Penny's to do all the business stuff associated with business owning while Kyle moped and dressed like a bird. Kyle left the party and headed over to Steve Strange's place to commiserate with his costumed cronies, the Defenders. Meanwhile, Valkyrie was wandering around the Lower East Side, continuing her ongoing existential crisis. The introspective ingenue was bummed out on account of being a mystical entity who was sorcerously jammed into the host body of a woman named Barbara Norris, with whom Val shared no memories. A heroine took some time away from her metaphysical malaise to rescue a baby by stabbing an enormous rabid sewer rat with her magic sword. Hooray! When Val saw the horrific conditions of the building the apparently unnamed infant and its mother Elena were forced to live in, the enchanted impromptu exterminator invited them to come crash with her at Steve's sanctum sanctimonious. A few hours later, Val and the defenders returned to Elena's rodent-ridden residence to retrieve her belongings, only to find that the dilapidated tenement building had been burned to the ground by a group of snake cosplaying white supremacists, who called themselves the Sons of the Serpent. I decided that alliteration was too good for Nazi fuck faces like them, so I was going to call them the Turd-Licking Shitweasels. So I did. The defenders fought the Turd-Licking Shitweasels for a while, then called a timeout and everyone went home. During the timeout, the sanctum received two surprise visitors. Guest one was their occasional pal, the multi-aliased Marvel Hank Pym, in his yellow jacket getup. Uninvited guest B was a creepy lurker named Jack Norris. It turned out that Jack was the estranged husband of Valkyrie's host body, Barbara. Things were tense between Val and Jack, mostly due to Val not remembering Jack and Jack not listening to Val. The two had little time to develop this dysfunctional dynamic because before long, the turd-licking shitweasels appeared on the television and announced their plan to blow up inner-city housing to start a race war. Shitty. This is why you can't call timeouts when fighting racists. The gang heard a loud explosion and ran outside to find that the TLSWs had begun enacting their plan by firebombing a nearby city block. The defenders in Yellowjacket rushed off to douse the flames and rescue the citizens, and were ambushed by the shitweasels. The turdlickers quickly KO'd and captured Steve, Kyle, LaFalle, and Hank. The Hulk struggled valiantly, but was eventually overwhelmed by the shield numbers of the coprophagic crumbums and their high-tech racist bullshit. The turd-licking shit-weasels dragged the initial quartet of captured costumed crime fighters back to their secret headquarters as their prisoners, leaving the Hulk unconscious in the middle of the street. Why not imprison the Green Goliath as well? Well, for one thing, have you ever tried to pick up a sleeping cat? Now imagine that cat was green, weighed 1,400 pounds, and would try to kill you when it woke up. Also, they're idiots. During his shit-weasels-induced slumber, the Hulk reverted to his Bruce Banner form. Val, Steve, Kyle, and Hank awoke to find themselves in the TLSW's lair, tied to some vertical beams with sculpted metal snakes. Well, Val, Kyle, and Hank awoke. Steve kept snoozing. The weasel said some more racist shit, which pissed off Val. She flexed real hard, shattered her steel snakes which bound her, and beat the crap out of the turd lickers. Hooray! Then one of the turd-licking shit weasels snuck up and shot her in the back with a ray gun. Proclaiming that she would be the first to die, the TLSWs dragged her out of the base. A few minutes later, an unguarded Hank Pym used his sciency bug powers to shrink down and escape from his bonds. Unable to free Kyle or wake up Steve, Inspector and Sector explored a bit, only to find that the base they were being held in was on the ocean's floor. Meanwhile, a de-hulkified Bruce Banner had dragged himself back to Steve's house and, using a combination of Clea's weird and eldritch powers and the Yellow Pages, enlisted the aid of some emergency backup defenders, namely Daredevil, Luke Cage, hero for hire, and Damon Hellstrom, a.k.a. Son of Satan on account of the devil being his dad. Hooray! Soon after this unlikely trio arrived to join Banner and Clea at the Sanctum, the turd-licking shitweasels once again showed up on the TV, this time declaring their intention to burn Valkyrie to death while she is tied unconscious to an inverted cross. Because that ought to sway public opinion in their favor. Great thinking, you evil racist fuckwads! The Legion of Substitute Defenders leapt into action, joined by a rehulkified Hulk and a frantic Jack Norris. Well... Technically only the Hulk leaps into action. Daredevil swung into action on his billy club slash grappling hook thingy. Norris ran into action. And Luke Cage and the Son of Satan rode into action on a flaming chariot drawn by three demonic snake-butted horses. Because Damon Hellstrom knows how to commit to a fucking motif. Unfortunately, just when they were about to land at the site of the intended execution, the snake-butted horses, the chariot, and its two extraordinary passengers disappeared into a hole in the sky. Bye, Luke and Damon! Distracted by the disappearance of his compatriots, Daredevil was sucker-punched and KO'd by the TLSWs. The Hulk started smashing racist scum left and right and was about to free Val when he too was ambushed by shitweasels who blasted him in the face with some kind of mega flashlight temporarily blinding the behemoth. Gadzooks! With a host of heroes hamstrung, who will rescue Valkyrie? What will prove the catalyst for this downfall of those repugnant racist rodentia, the turd-licking shitweasels? Am I aware that weasels are not in fact rodents and are of the genus Mostella? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so. Jack Norris. Yeah, I'm as surprised as you are. Um. A whole bunch of casually racist white dudes who don't want super overtly racist white dudes giving racism a bad name. And. Yes, I am. But, as always, I am a sucker for alliteration. Oh, shit. I already said that alliteration was too good for the turd licking shit weasels. Okay, repugnantly racist Mustella it is. Damn it, still too alliterative. Uh, let's go with asshole racist Mustella? Either way, fuck those guys. Hey, whatever happened to Luke Cage, son of Satan, and those snake-butted horses? Well, it turns out that that hole in the sky that the flaming chariot... Wait, why the heck isn't Damon calling his flying hell chariot the Helicopter? He is now. Turns out the hole in the sky, the Helicopter, disappeared into, was actually a portal created by Clea, who mind-linked with the now barely conscious Steve Strange. Clea sends the hero-harboring Helicopter into the Orb of Agamotto, which is linked to the Eye of Agamotto, and the confused crime fighters and their conspicuous conveyance burst out of the amulet that Steve is wearing around his neck. Uh, okay. I mean, I guess that complete disregard of the rules of physics and geography was a pretty neat trick, but Steve and his buddies are in no immediate physical danger. Why not use your mystical Uber app to have Luke and Damon come pick you up after they rescue Val from being burned to death? Fucking Steve. Luke busts Nighthawk out of his bonds, and Son of Satan blasts Doctor Strange's manacles with a burst of hellfire from his trident that he says has been specifically calibrated to melt steel, but not Steve's. Handy stuff. Steve is still too weak to teleport them, but luckily, Damon Hellstrom is able to use his My Daddy is the Devil powers to locate a tunnel that leads the heroes out of the undersea prison. Hooray! But, how are things going for our newly liberated heroes' above-ground allies? Not well. Hulk is still blinded and flailing about wildly, while a concussed daredevil is being carried away by two turd-licking shitweasels. The rest of the fecal-friendly mustellas are about to light the pyre under the inverted cross Valkyrie is tied to. So, yeah, not great. Seems like Luke Cage and Damon Hellstrom's presence would have been real useful about now, but no, Steve was feeling a little antsy. Fortunately, Daredevil comes to and is able to flip away from his would-be captors. But, before the slippery, sightless superhero has a chance to move in on the turd-licking shitweasel who is about to incinerate Val, he is beaten to the proverbial, and in this case literal, punch by Jack Norris. The enraged everyman bursts forth from the crowd and starts wailing on the torch-bearing shitweasel. You know what, Jack? Hooray! Once the gathered crowd sees an ordinary fellow like Jack start beating up a costumed Nazi, they decide they all want in on the act. Led by a casual racist who mentions his hatred of black people and barely restrains himself from using the N-word, but does think that immolation might be going a bit far, so I guess a moderate? The mob surges forward, overwhelming the more than casually racist costumed creeps. The Hulk and Daredevil pitch in, and soon the turd-licking shit-weasels turn tail and flee, pausing only briefly to yell some stupid racist shit over their shoulders as they do so. Hulk, Jack, and Daredevil untie a still-unconscious Valkyrie from her inverted cross and carry her back to the sanctum sanctimonious. Meanwhile, their still-subterranean costumed compatriots are finally about to reach the egress of their underwater tunnel. They find that the secret passage exits into what appears to be an ordinary business office. Huh. In fact, the mundane setting seems almost familiar to one of the Defenders. Nighthawk is confused for a minute, then pokes around a bit, and is horrified when his darkest suspicions are confirmed. The office belongs to his most trusted employee, Pennysworth. It turns out that the secretly sinister COO has been bankrolling the exploits of the turd-licking shitweasels with money from Richmond Enterprises, Nighthawk's own company. Kyle is flabbergasted. So he does what he usually does when he is surprised. Reveal his secret identity to the three relative strangers he is hanging out with. This seems to calm Kyle down a little bit, but the billionaire duel bird enthusiast is still flummoxed. It's almost as though he should have paid some kind of attention to the details of the goings-on of his multinational corporation that he is nominally in charge of. This thought has apparently never occurred to him before. Before it has much of a chance to sink in, Kyle manages to transform his sense of culpability into an emotion he is more familiar with. Anger. Vowing to punch the shit out of Pennysworth as soon as possible, the perturbed plutocrat straps on his jetpack and flies off in a fury. Atta boy, you just punch away any feelings that make you uncomfortable. It's the American way. Then we get a brief interlude. A young married couple in a trailer park in California is enjoying a quiet evening at home. Tom Pritchard has just started serenading his wife Linda with his acoustic guitar rendering of a John Denver song when he hears a knock at the door. Unannoyed, Tom goes to answer the door and is very surprised at the image that greets him. What he sees is an elf. Like a Santa's village elf. The elf in question whips out a gun and shoots Tom at point-blank range. So, I'ma go ahead and say that Tom's surprise was entirely justified. End. Interlude. Speaking of surprises, Pennysworth is more than a little nonplussed when an enraged nighthawk bursts through the window of his suburban home. Kyle starts manhandling the amoral business manager, then, momentarily unsure of how to proceed, reverts to his default and reveals his secret identity to the frightened financier. That's our Kyle. The belligerent bird aficionado demands that Pennysworth inform him of how he could give Richmond Enterprises money to the turd-licking shitweasels, betraying, as Kyle puts it, your own people. Oh, I should probably mention that Pennysworth is black. Pennysworth tells Kyle that he'll cooperate, but also that Kyle should shut up. It turns out that Richmond Enterprises has been doing all kinds of fucked up shit for a long time, and Kyle's never given a crap before or even asked any questions as long as it made money, and Pennysworth didn't see why he should start drawing the line at racism. It also turns out that Pennysworth doesn't much care for his fellow black man, the only color he cares about is green. And I don't mean the Hulk. Nighthawk drags his amoral employee back to Steve's place, and Luke Cage beats up Pennysworth for a minute. The self-loathing COO tells the Defenders the location of the turd-licking shitweasel's other secret headquarters, the non-underwater one. It turns out that the TLSWs have been hiding out under the foundation of that first building they burned down. Those sneaky fuckwads. The Defenders, joined by Luke Cage, Daredevil, the Son of Satan, and Yellowjacket, Kool-Aid man their way through the shitweasel ceiling and beat the living snot out of the turd-licking shitweasels once and for all. Hooray! Most of the defenders feel pretty good about their weasel stomp, but Kyle is still bummed out. He finally realizes that running a multinational corporation is a big responsibility, and he's been a super negligent, spoiled piece of crap his whole life. Um, yup. The other defenders feel bad for him. Okay. I mean... Sure, there's a whole bunch more dead or newly homeless poor people due to Kyle's hands off approach to running a business, but if that's how you want to allocate your sympathy, that's your choice, guys. Yeah, poor Kyle. Thus ends the saga of the turd licking shit weasels. Hooray! And joining us once again is my good for many things brother, Corey.
1: Corey, how's it going? Good, I guess, but... The... Elf with a gun! What Elf the fuck? Elf with a gun! Yeah! <laughs> what the So, fuck?
0: yeah. There's a bunch of things in this issue that we get to talk about, and then there's a bunch of stuff that we've got to talk about. So, yeah.
1: Let's start with one of the things that we get to talk about. Elf with a gun. Makes no sense. Agreed. Is there any... Defender's canon that talks about the appearance of this Not previously. This
0: is the... You have the same context that everyone else did when it first showed up. This is when we meet him. It is what it says on the box, man. It's an elf with a gun. And this is kind of, honestly, the context that he exists in for quite some time. Damn. Yeah. So, I don't know. My theory on it, if I had just this issue to go from, is that elf with a gun... Maybe works for BMI uh, and is just like, unauthorized John Denver cover.
1: Not on my watch, bub. Yeah, Tom Pritchett looks a lot like John Denver. Also, a lot like Andy
0: Warhol. Also, a lot like Roy Thomas. Or at least as Roy Thomas has appeared in this comic book before. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot going on. And you had a comment about what
1: Linda looked like. Yeah, she's drawn... A little not I mean, she's clearly supposed to be a person. It's okay. She looks like um a sex doll. Yeah, and once you said that, it is difficult to see her as anything else, and it
0: does kind of change the context of that one page of us meeting this young couple. It's very much could be a Lars in the Real Girl situation where he's uh singing singing some John Denver tunes. Say, romancing his uh his love doll. Yep. It is interesting. Yeah, it's just the whole thing is kind of creepy. It is, it is a weird, creepy non sequitur that very much, in my mind, marks the beginning of the almost second phase of Steve Gerber Defender's comics. Mm. A lot of weird, seemingly non sequitur, kind of strange for its own sake, but not necessarily without its charm, things like this going on.
1: I should clarify, too, just in case it's not clear, this isn't like a Legolas-type elf. This is like a little Christmas elf. Yeah. Like, with the green tights and pointy shoes and little cap. Right. Yes, it is very much a Santa's helper elf. Drawn
0: with a very evil expression, holding a six-gun. Uh-huh. And just really shows up and does a murder. Yep. At least a single murder. We don't know what happens to Linda.
1: If, If Linda is, in fact... A person. <laughs> yeah. Just, guess we'll, you're right. there guess we'll find out. I do like the way that Tom reacts to the elf at the door, which is he uses an expression that I think is a cute way to say crazy, which is crackers. <laughs> yeah. That is fun. Linda, or perhaps Tom's projection of Linda, uh-huh. says, you know, who's at the door? And he's, he's like, well, you're going to think I'm crackers, but it's an elf <laughs> with a gun. <laughs> and then he gets shot.
0: Oh, so Linda does talk from off panel. It it seems like he's... He's reacting to something. Yeah,
1: he's answering something, but maybe he's...
0: Okay, there is a caption that says, Tom, what is it? What's wrong? So, it's in caption rather than appearing in a word bubble. So, it is possible that that is Tom thinking that to himself, but I think that does kind of lead us away from the theory that Linda is, in fact, a life model decoy, as it were. Um...
1: No, she's just a... Somewhat poorly drawn, and yes. raptured by John Denver's music, lady, lady, yeah, in a chair,
0: yeah. It's it's weird for me to see that specifically the lyrics to Country Roads on there because the version of that that I am by far more familiar with is the Toots and the Maytals cover. Oh, so good. It is so good, but I was like, why would he be playing that? That doesn't seem like the kind of thing that this Tom fellow would be playing on his acoustic guitar. And then I had to remember that it's a John Denver song. West Jamaica? He doesn't know about West Jamaica. (laughs) No way. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much that's Elf with a Gun. That's our introduction to this seminal character. Not that way, Corey. (laughs) uh, It just me. I don't care for that word.
1: (laughs) Okay, fair enough. That's our introduction to Elf with a Gun. Thank you. Did you enjoy it? Uh yeah, I mean it's kind of it also has the feel of a cheap shot in the sense of like putting a clown in something. Sure, where I was just like, "Hmm, how do I make this weird and creepy?" Here there, we go. There is that aspect to
0: it. And and I understand that. When I first read the series, I was just like, "What the fuck? This is what what is going on here?" And I think that's the reaction you're supposed to have. Coming back
1: to it, less so. Mm-hmm. But we'll see how it goes going forward. Yeah. It does seem incongruous, too, because we come from something where, like, oh, the shirtless, pentagram-tattooed son of Satan is just, like, a normal dude out doing things. Right. That's totally cool. Elf with a gun? What? What kind of a crazy
0: world am I in now? Exactly. But, I, I mean, they did find something that does kind of elicit that reaction, not just from the characters within the book, but from us. Well, okay. So, Kudos. So now let's get to one of the things that I feel like we've got to talk about, but I don't really know how to. There's kind of a lot of that,
1: actually, in this. There's a book. lot of weird racial stuff that happens in this issue. So I'll, I'll attempt to to jump in using one of your least favorite people as the segue, which is Jack Norris. Okay. And so the churd-looking weasels. Yes. As we left off, have Val tied upside down unconscious to a cross. They're about to light her on fire and burn her up. Yep. Uh, Norris doesn't like this. He runs in to save her. And it's the most that I've liked Jack Norris ever. And then my notes that I'm looking back on them now saying Norris saves Val inspires casually racist resistance to overtly racist disruption of status quo. Because wait, so there's this crowd of people. He inspires the casual racist to be like wait a minute this situation's messed up not in my town we're gonna take our city back from these actual from overt
0: racists okay i thought i thought you were saying that it propels someone from being a casual
1: racist into an overt racist which it has the opposite effect kind of it's a weird it's a really weird thing though because so norris jumps in saves val and then the the mood in the crowd is expressed by the dialogue of a couple people is like, well, I don't like black people. And the other guy's like, yeah, but it doesn't mean we have to burn them. Spe- and then they're like, yeah, let's go beat up the... Yeah, I, my notes say, woke bystanders? <laughs> it's like the worst
0: vo- version of woke possible. And it's also just like, are these the people that we're now calling moderates? Which is the, the well, guy I don't who- like black people, but I don't think we should burn them to death. And specifically, the language that he uses, and it's one of the things that I definitely take issue with with the writing in this is
1: the self-correction that the self-correction is.
0: so a group of people have gathered around i i think that the turd licking shit weasels are a somewhat populist movement at this point and the people that have gathered in this throng are rather than horrified bystanders predominantly it seems like they are supposed to be supporters of them people who are drawn to their message of yeah we should get rid of all of the minorities and one guy in the crowd says, what's the matter with this? I mean, I got no love for the, ni the blacks, but, and then someone interrupts him and says, right, we don't got to burn them alive just because we don't like them. Come on. Mm-hmm. And then as I wrote it, like, Jack Norris makes Nazi punching look so fun, even racists want in on the act. Mm. And it's viewed as almost like an extension of, of populism that like, yeah, if if a regular Joe like us can overthrow these powerful costumed people, which seems to be the context that they're viewing the turd-licking shit weasels in, rather than just a white supremacist organization, mm-hmm. then we should all stand up to them, I guess. But it's still cool that we're racist, right? It's weird, and there's there's a disconnect in this and in a number of things that come up in this issue where... One of the things that I sometimes like about Gerber's writing is that he will present just kind of a big steaming pile of here's all this stuff, but without having a clear message or like moral to it that or or any real clear takeaway or narrative structure even sometimes. And it's something that I think I used to like about it more than I do now, Mm -hmm. where when I read it, I think when I was younger, I was kind of like, just like, man, that's so deep. It's just like life. There aren't any clear cut answers. You, you have to make your own version of this. And as I get older, I'm just like, yeah, but it's still a story that he wrote. And he could have put a moral. Sometimes when you put a moral in something, it can come off as kind of heavy handed. It kind of still comes off as very heavy handed, but without any
1: clear, effective message behind it. You know? Why? Yeah, I was thinking about the, the in particular, the the guy in the crowd who starts to say the n-word and then stops himself like was the purpose of that to illustrate the folks in the crowd were supporters of the tlsws or that's what i was unclear about and that's why it didn't really
0: make any sense like if he's a racist he would have just gone ahead and said the n-word right and if he's not then why is he starting to say for whose benefit is he correcting his language other than censors Like other than this is a comic book, we can't say that word, but I wanted to write that word. So I'm going to allude to the fact of the word without actually saying it. It's a weird cheat and Mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense from a character standpoint. Like I don't know who in that context would say this and it confuses who that character is supposed to be and who they're supposed to represent.
1: It's also strange that the catalyst for the crowd springing into action to beat up the bad guys is the rescue of somebody that the bad guys are hurting not the, the bad guys doing something atrocious right that i can almost understand
0: and that that is as close as it comes to a message Is just like It seems overwhelming to have this group of people. And then when one person acts, then it frees everyone else and is
1: empowering to them somehow. Yeah, you don't need a costume to save somebody.
0: Right, but it really does just make the whole crowd seem like these fickle-like, just followers in general. It doesn't come across as necessarily empowering because they all showed up there because somebody told them to and said like, Hey, we can make things better for you white racist and they're like yeah that sounds great let's go watch them burn some people mm-hmm. and then somebody tries to stop them and they're like yeah that's right let's stop them from burning some people
1: yeah let's take our city back
0: yeah again from us
1: <laughs> very it,
0: it's a confusing. confused message another thing that happened in the issue that i really wasn't sure what it was trying to say that i thought was an interesting choice and that's the the thing with this like It is challenging in a certain way reading this and it does make you think about stuff and that's good, but it also does seem like it doesn't have anything clear that it's saying and it's tough to tell where being innovative in your writing and being challenging to your readers ends and where being a lazy writer begins. Mm. You know, it's kind of a blurred line there Mm -hmm. where this is a situation that you presented and then... It's unclear what you're saying about it, and I don't mind doing some of the work, but meet me halfway on it, you know? Part of what I'm talking about, too, is the fact that we learn that Pennysworth is the person who has been bankrolling the turd-licking shit weasels mm-hmm. through Kyle's corporation, and that Penny'sworth is black. There's a couple of ways to read that. One of them is, and it it tries to set this up a little bit, I think, you get a systemic racism that does affect people and will make people turn on their their own race and and act in a way that is opportunistic. And that I think it it does kind of convey about Penny's Worth. And it's not like there aren't people who are more than willing to to be awful to their own people and who have that kind of internalized self-loathing and racism. Mm-hmm. And it does portray him in that context too. But it also does make it seem, especially where it's the uh, turd licking shit weasels, who were previously known as the Sons of Serpent. When they showed up earlier, it turned out that they were a racist organization, but that was secretly spearheaded by the Chinese as a means to subvert good white American racists. Mm-hmm. And now it's their tool of a self loathing black man to subvert good clean-cut white american race blue-collar racists mm-hmm. and so it's it's weird you know and, yeah. and i don't necessarily have the tools to talk about it and i don't know if two white dudes in portland oregon are the right people to talk about this but it, it is worth worth exploring definitely and i don't really know how i feel about this story
1: frankly yeah I got some thinking to do on it myself. I the other part too, which is also interesting, is that it uses it to explore this idea of of, you know, profits before people and mm-hmm. and you know, the disconnect between what companies are doing that are that are making money for the shareholders or the owners of those companies and that actually being the justification that pennyworth uses. He says it's not about race, it's all about the the bottom line. Right. I I think if it was presented a little
0: bit later, it would be like, the only color I care about is green. Right. Which they don't say. It seems like that's a missed opportunity, frankly. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But Kyle's not having it. Kyle's not having it, but... day late and a dollar short, buddy. I gotta say, honestly, that is one thing that I do not... Like, I understand. I think that is consistent motivation from Penny's Worth. And, I mean, don't get me wrong. I am not on his side. Uh Obviously, hate the turd-licking shit weasels and bankrolling them is definitely wrong and regardless of the race of the person who is doing it but i don't necessarily disagree with his assessment in terms of his opportu- in terms of his employment that he's like i just assumed you wouldn't give a shit you don't give a shit what other evil stuff your money does and that is the one clear message that you can take away from this issue is that kyle's been a real shit and that It's kind of an indictment of capitalism in a lot of ways that I think is valid. And that, yeah, the corporations, they don't pay attention and they do a lot of awful, terrible shit. That is kind of a clear message that you get to take away from this. And I think especially in the case of running a business for Kyle Richmond, who not only has been completely absentee, and I think you can view, look, just make me the most money that you can. I don't give a shit. No questions asked. I think there is a read on that that is just like, hey, man, do whatever. I don't care who you fuck over. That's what the game is. I want to win this game. And I think those are the rules that Penny's has been playing by as much as he's been playing by any rules. And that, I think, is kind of not uncommon in her corporate culture.
1: Yet yeah, suddenly, once Kyle is made aware of this and he's complicit in this act of, you know, murder and raising the houses of, of the, the poor people to make room mm-hmm. for towers or whatever. yeah. Suddenly, his conscience blossoms. Yes.
0: Here's what I mean, though, in terms of, like, that specifically with him. Because not only was he somebody who previously had been a hands-off CEO and basically was like, here's the keys, do whatever the fuck you want. He also was, for the majority of his life until, within the comic book, I'm guessing about six months ago, a for real legitimate supervillain. So I don't think it's really all that fair of him to act... Certainly, he should be angry, he should fire Penny's Worth, he should send Penny's Worth to jail. He shouldn't be acting as hurt and betrayed. Mm-hmm. Like...
1: Yeah, he doesn't get to do
0: that. It's confusing. If nothing else, when you decide you don't want to be evil anymore, you have to tell the people that are acting on your behalf that you're not evil anymore.
1: And what happened, you know, other than the, the obvious stuff, though, to finally flip that switch or turn that light bulb on for him? Because it does seem to hit him really hard and really fast. You know, like suddenly, oh, this life of crime I had before, and making all this money, and... I think, honestly, that is one thing that kind of rings true to a certain extent. I
0: don't know what flipped the light, but I think when you grow up with that kind of money and privilege and wealth, it is invisible to you. It's just something that's always there, that's always been there, and you don't question what it does. You just sit back and you get the benefits of it, and hey, that works out pretty well for me. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe just like dabbling into his superheroism lately has perhaps put him more in touch with common people than he ever has been, even though that's not very in touch. And especially if you're considering common people, Steve. (laughs) 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 But I, I mean, yeah, I think his power has been largely invisible to him and he doesn't realize how much effect he has had on other things and that now he is starting to a little bit. Mm hmm. You're right, it it does seem like an off-and-sudden switch. But, eh, I kind of get where it's coming from on that.
1: He gets to fly off into the sunset at the end in search of his better self.
0: Yeah, so I don't know how that's going to work out. Hopefully he will be a little bit more hands-on with his business dealings. Uh, I think I've pointed out in previous issues, Dude, you have been an absentee billionaire, and that is incredibly, like, negligent. And as... Possible serious negative repercussions, and we do see that, so that was good. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about some funner shit. Okay, let's get just like aside from the larger themes, aside from that stuff, just some of the nitty and the gritty of the issue. Oh, and gritty it was. Okay, bad job, Clea. <laughs> that's <was laughs> the first thing that I had written down. You gotta triage your fucking rescue attempts, son of Satan. And Luke Cage are on their way to rescue Valkyrie, who is seconds away from being burned in the stake. As soon as they are about to land, Clea is just like, oh, I think I sense that Steve's awake. I'll send them to him instead. Mm -hmm. It ended up working okay, but that is a terrible job. Like, rescue her, then send them there. They were in no immediate danger. The the prisoners that were still strapped into their staffs of Catechus, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: no immediate danger.
1: Well, when Steve woke up, she was able to detect through his amulet or whatever. And so I'm sure that he has some kind of a thing programmed into the eye of Agamotto. That is uh, me first. Yeah. She's <laughs> like, I am ready for rescuing now. I have to put on my own oxygen
0: mask before I can help that of those around me. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind the browser history. <laughs> like, rescue me. Let's talk a little bit about Damon Hellstrom.
1: All right. Good job, Damon.
0: Good job, Damon. I think he did a really nice job. I like that he seems to be using a scientific method to his exploration of his satanic mystical powers. Mm. Like, he talks about, like, this soul fire has been specifically calibrated to just barely melt your bonds, but you'll be fine as long as you don't move. And he also talks about using his sorcerous powers like, scientific instruments to find, like, the exit to the whatever. So it's almost got that, like, if Hungen knew what the fuck he was doing <laughs> kind of vibe to it, you know what I mean? I really like the idea of magical powers being tested empirically and improved upon through scientific method. I think
1: that's a really fun idea. It seems to me also, like any skill, the wielding of magic is something that requires great practice to become good at. Yeah, but Um, you get that sense from him in a way that you don't from Steve. Right. Well, Steve, as we learned from the movie, is just naturally gifted. Right. He'll just pick up a book (laughs) and be like, I'll do these things. Mm, Very well. Yeah. Nice trident. Yeah, nice trident. Really, I
0: know we talked about it before, but I love the extent to which he reminds me of a mashup of Steve and Namor. Uh, yeah, both physically and in terms of, I guess in terms of his personality, to me, at least in this issue, (laughs) he really just kind of comes across as like reasonable Steve. (laughs) Yeah. Like he has some of the arrogance, but it doesn't come across the same way. I really like the guy. My biggest question about him, and maybe you can help me answer this. How did he get the horses out? He just says he's going back Mm -hmm. through the tunnel. Mm Mm-hmm. Into the underwater sea base for his horses and chariot, which I don't think he can fit through the tunnel that he just came out of. There's no other way. Unless can he He can't teleport and stuff. No, also. that was Clea's doing.
1: Yeah. No, it was just he had to go make the tunnel bigger with his trident.
0: Okay. I, I was wondering if maybe, maybe demonic horses are like octopuses and that if they can squeeze through. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you got a snake-butted horse... He can squeeze through any opening that is smaller than his, uh, what's a part on a like, he don't they don't have beaks the way that octopuses do. Mm-hmm. Um, no hooves. Really? I, I feel like they got, See, they got skull teeth. heads. Like skull heads. They're they, inside their, their heads head have skulls. <laughs> oh. uh, I feel like maybe smaller than its head. But, like, either way, it does create an interesting visual of just, like, these, like, Mm. mashed-together snake-butted horses.
1: (laughs) If the horse's head has within it a skull, one would assume the rest of the horse's body also has a skeleton. In which case, the horse's ass would be the biggest part of the horse.
0: So you think the ass bone is bigger than the skull bone?
1: Well, the hips, yeah, the two. Oh. The whole thing, man. Okay. Okay. Do you wear like I wear a size thirty-two hat? <laughs> <laughs> I
0: don't know. A horses' heads are fucking enormous, and I'm terrified of them. It's, I feel like there is—I feel like there is nothing in the world that is bigger <laughs> than a horse's head. <laughs> I might be wrong about that, but psychologically, at any rate, I feel like the horse's head is the biggest part of its body.
1: Do you ever feed a horse an apple? Pretty cute. Didn't you have a horse bite you when you tried to feed it a carrot? Uh, I've mostly ponies have bitten me. I've actually been okay mostly with horses. So it's just ponies.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Ponies are less scary to me than horses. Well, <laughs> you just keep <laughs> thinking that, buddy. No, I will.
0: <laughs> I will. How do you? Where do you stand on miniature
1: horses? Oh, they seem cute. I don't know. I haven't met any.
0: I haven't met any either, but I kind of want to. Do you know the only two animals that you can use as service animals uh, according to the American Disabilities Act? are dogs and miniature horses. What? Yeah. You could bring a miniature horse on a plane.
1: <laughs> How is that a thing?
0: It's those are the only two ones that are can they be like guide animals. Guide yes, you can have a guide miniature
1: horse. Wow. Yeah. Oh man. That's the whole like line of business I'm thinking of now. You're gonna become a miniature horse breeder? Or just yeah. Or get get the, trainer? Yeah. Or hire people to Corey. Do... I know it's a little bit out of my wheelhouse. A little but... bit <laughs> I taught my dog to sit. Yeah. I can teach a okay. miniature horse to guide a blind person through a city streets. You're row. right; those are
0: equivalent <laughs> skills. <laughs> Fair enough. So we talked a little bit about Kyle being a dick. Mm-hmm. Kyle also continues to demonstrate in this issue his Teen Titan esque level of being terrible at having a secret identity. He reveals his secret identity to I think three people in this issue really by and large apropos of nothing. I mean, I guess he can kind of like he was emotionally shocked that he was involved and so I don't know why he had to reveal his secret identity to Pennysworth other than he knew Pennysworth and felt betrayed by him.
1: Well, yeah. Otherwise but, Pennysworth wouldn't have reacted as strongly. I guess. Like, I think he would have,
0: like, have if he just threatened to beat him up. Fuck you, I'll call my lawyers. Pennysworth seems like he is if if nothing else self-serving. I, I feel like he would not stand up well under threat of pummeling. And I could have stood to have him be pummeled a little bit more. But it brings to mind something where I feel like it's a weird situation for a Marvel comic book where unmasked Kyle Richmond is, I think, more of a celebrity than Nighthawk is. Like, I think more people, and not just because it being a secret identity, I, w- I don't think that many people in the Marvel Universe would know who Nighthawk is as Nighthawk. Like, if, if it's that recognizable of a costume. He's, like,
1: He's done maybe a fourth-tier
0: he- hero, and he hasn't been at it
1: for very long.
0: He's only beaten up a couple, like, jewel thieves and stuff. Right. Like. It's pretty
1: low-level rescue shit.
0: But he always acts as though everyone will recognize him as Nighthawk when he shows up places. What and it, it reminds me of, like, I, I don't know how the hierarchy of, like, superheroes as celebrities works in the Marvel Universe. It seems like there's a lot of superheroes. Like probably at least a few hundred. Mm -hmm. So that's relatively elite status, but not enough that you would immediately recognize any of them. I feel like it's kind of like probably an equivalent to the level of celebrity you have being a professional basketball player, where there's like, there's a few of them, everybody recognizes immediately, but if three people show up in a room and it's like LeBron James, Kevin Durant, and a J.J. Reddick or something like that. If J.J. Redick walks into a room, not immediately everybody's going to just be like, oh, that's J.J. Redick." even if they subconsciously kind of have an idea of who the person is. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's the level of celebrity that Nighthawk is working with and just assuming that when he shows up, people will treat him like he's LeBron James. So, I don't know. He does a bad job with his secret identity, but I think he does a worse job almost overestimating the impact of his assumed identity.
1: The privilege talking. Yeah, fair enough. What do you think about superhero self-promotion? Is that a thing in comics these days? Do they have, like, Instagram? You know,
0: sometimes. It's one of those where I bet it's a bigger deal, and I feel like it's been explored a little bit. The example that comes to mind most readily to me is in DC Comics. Booster Gold is a character who's big on doing PR shit Mm -hmm. and that was kind of the thrust of some of the whole idea of that character which I think is really interesting and I think it could and perhaps should be explored a little bit more than it is because
1: I think there's interesting stories to tell about that Mm. getting back to the perennial theme of needlessly complicated things yes why does the tunnel from the underground jail go directly to a manhole cover in Penny's worth's office uh, why, huh, why? I, gosh, I don't know, man. It makes no damn sense. It seems sense. like it's just like, well, that,
0: that would be convenient. I, yeah, I don't know why it doesn't go anyplace else. They had telephones. I don't think Penny's Worth is necessarily doing that much hands-on villainy. You're right. I, it doesn't make a ton of sense.
1: Love that scene though. Power Man's head pops up. <laughs> He's I, like, you guys are not going to believe this. It's an office. <laughs> Why wouldn't he believe that it's an office?
0: I don't know why that's like shocking to him. I don't know. I mean, I guess I do know, but it is, seems kind of incredible that Kyle is that bad at his business that he doesn't Sorry. recognize. He's he's in the office for a while. It's like, ah, oh, so gosh, familiar. this place seems familiar. <laughs> it's your fucking COO's office. He does a bad job. He does such a terrible job. Like there's probably pictures
1: of him in there. It seems like... Like, on the wall, like, they have the picture of the, the president in the government offices? Yeah, like...
0: Or, or, like, Penny's worth, like, shaking his hand or something. I feel like Penny's worth thinks they have a closer relationship than they do. Mm-hmm. And that Penny's worth kind of takes some, like, self-importance in his stature as being the right-hand man of Kyle. Mm-hmm. There was another thing that I do want to bring up really briefly, which is a, a little speech that Luke Cage gives when he first shows up in the underwater headquarters of the turd-licking shit weasels, he gives this speech about, like, I'd think I was dreaming, only I never dream in color, except maybe one color, gray. I dream of high gray walls. It seems like a weird thing to just explicitly state as a stream of consciousness. And Kyle's reaction is just like, yeah, I don't know, buddy, maybe I, I could recommend a good psychiatrist if you want to talk about this more.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That is maybe the most likable that Kyle ever is in this issue. Mm-hmm. But it does bring up something about Luke Cage, too, which is, So, I never dream in color, except, one, except sometimes gray. What do you dream in the rest of the time? Like, generally, when you don't dream in color, that would mean black and white and gray. Mm-hmm. So, the rest of the time, he just dreams in, like, stark black and white imagery with no gradation in
1: between? Now that's a problem, probably.
0: Yeah, it's like I normally just dream in like, M.C. Escher paintings. Ooh. Even those have gray in them. What's just black and white? Mm, the trade a paper newspaper. newspaper and red all over. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> it was a strange turn of phrase. It seemed like
1: Gerber showing off a little bit, but it didn't really work. I just assumed it was one of those things that I was missing that yeah it's a reference to something it is it is
0: definitely a reference to the fact that luke cage spent a lot of time in prison Uh and was an escaped convict that i think at this point in the comics that is still a secret but it didn't make sense to introduce it in that way Mm -hmm. and literally the things that he said did not make sense Mm -hmm. so there was that anyway you want to get into the minutiae what's okay rick take it away we got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia, Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff Thanks, Rick Thank you Sound effects What
1: was your favorite sound effect? Oh man, there were some good ones in here There really were They both kind of go together, but I think I'm going to go with SPASH Oh boy, SPASH is
0: very fun Yes, that is Nighthawk busting into Penny'sworth's house
1: Mm-hmm. As the sound of glass shattering as, as Nighthawk flies through the window.
0: And yes, so breaking through a window pane makes a SPASH noise. Mm-hmm. My favorite is one that we have referred to before as, uh, I think, a Fudian noise or a Fudism. That was my backup. Which is the noise that Son of Satan's staff makes <laughs> when he <laughs> fires it. It goes flash, flash. <laughs> FWASH, FWASH. FWASH. Flash, flash! It was a flashing good time. So, uh, it was a little flashy for my taste. <laughs> 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 I really enjoy that. And I can actually see it making that noise. Like, I think that is not an inaccurate way to describe a sound, mm-hmm. but it's like a spelled out phonetically. Flash, <laughs> yeah. Flash it up. Yeah. Sartorially speaking, what fashion choices in this issue would you like to comment upon?
1: Penny's worth, despite being a real shit. Mm-hmm. Knows how to dress down. Well, not not really dressing down. down. But like, knows when he gets home, does the Fred Rogers thing where he gets out of his business clothes, probably a Uh fancy suit, puts on some green silk PJ slacks, a purple silk, I'm assuming, smoking jacket with black trim, and a yellowish orange, maybe cream colored, either cravat. I think it's. Or. Let's say it's a cravat this time. I'd, I'd say this time. I know we've been through this. We've had it explained to us, but we will not remember. It is either a cravat or an ascot. Google Images was no help in this matter either. It gave me the same pictures of cravats and ascots. Man. Very disappointed. All right. Well, you know what that means. Hmm. Common usage.
0: You can call it either one, it's out of our hands.
1: I'm going to call it a cravat.
0: I'm going to call it a crevasse. <laughs> See, that is what it means when it's a cross between an ascot and a cravat a cravat a cravat uh, it looks it, it is a look a very specific look that we have seen before I think we have seen both Bruce Wayne in the Teen Titans comic and Mr Jupiter dressed almost exactly like this in the past uh, and it is a very distinctive look and tells us a lot about Penny's worth. It looks like super dapper,
1: but also super cozy. Yeah, yeah and super comfortable. Just kind of awesome. We kind of got to start dressing like that more. I do have a smoking jacket. Yeah, I know. I think I got that for you for Christmas.
0: one ah. year. I have a smoking jacket, too. We should start wearing our smoking jackets more. Uh-huh. All right. All right.
1: Deal. Ascots. Okay. I'm sorry. Crevasses. Crevasses. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the other person that I want to comment sartorially on is one of the background racists who is wearing
1: crazy pinstripe,
0: a dope fucking suit that is like turquoise and white pinstripes.
1: It's so garish.
0: It is very garish, and I really like it. I feel that he is at least a casual racist, and I do not condone that, but damn it, the man knows how to dress. And it's possible, like, we, we don't actually know that much about what is going on in the heads of the background characters who have gathered there. We know that that one guy is at least casually racist. We don't know if the rest of the crowd has just gathered around is just like, won't somebody stop them? That's what I choose to ascribe to this garishly dressed man. Just because I like how he dresses so I don't want him to be evil. That's not good. That's so... He can be evil and well-dressed. That's the sad law of the universe. Oh, man. I wish we lived in a sartorial meritocracy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, dude. Yeah. I had... Some difficulty with this category, as I have been having more of lately. Who in this issue had to be a sucker? Which character acted in a way that is counter to their previously established motivation or character in a way that furthered the plot?
1: Who you got? For this, I got Kyle for the aforementioned flipping the switch of growing a conscience and okay. flying off into the sunset in a troubled way. Okay. That I think is fair. Who Mine- do
0: it's a stretch in that it's just, like, one specific thing. But I chose Daredevil. there, And it's for his reaction to Jack Norris saying, like, Valkyrie's about to light on fire! I, I gotta rush in and get her! And I guess it doesn't really further the plot, so it's not entirely in keeping with this category. But Valkyrie is upside down, unconscious, over a flame, about to be lit on fire. Jack starts rushing towards her and says, I've gotta get her down! I have to save my wife! And Daredevil says... Don't lose your head. She'll be fine now. I feel like generally, I mean, that seems like a level-headed thing to say, but actually in this situation, Jack is right. We see the flame is touching her hair. Yeah, maybe hurry a little bit. And I feel like in general, Daredevil is not a sociopath. I might be wrong about that. I haven't read a ton of the character. And as he's written by Frank Miller, he is somewhat kind of a sociopath. So maybe I'm just wrong about that. But, but he's
1: quick to action.
0: Yeah, and it it, it doesn't seem like that would be... Anybody who isn't terrible's reaction to that is like, calm down, buddy. We'll get her down mm-hmm. eventually. So, yeah, like I said, it's it's kind of a weird cheat and it's not really in the spirit of the category, but I chose Daredevil. Let's talk about words.
1: Okay, what were your favorite words in this? My favorite words in this, I'm going to go with some editorializing. Oh, is it uh, a certain... Pat on the back to oneself? Yes, it is. I had that one written down as well. The part of it that cracked me up, and I'll read the whole thing, was the editor... Editor's note. Editor's note to themselves. But, um, so this is after the uh, the tide has turned, and Mm -hmm. the casual racists have decided to try and fight the overt racists. Hooray! (laughs) Hooray! And um, that is editorialized. But, the serpent leader's plea is lost in the din. The tide of history has crested upon a reef of humanity. And the people, it would seem, have caused it to ebb. Mm, And then there's a little asterisk. There's an asterisk and a footnote for that asterisk that says, nifty metaphor, no? SG. It's not even that the editor wrote that. The author wrote that. (laughs) It's just like, I'd like everybody to know how nicely I put this.
0: I did a good, good job. I'm a good, good writer boy. (laughs) I like the pat on the head. (laughs) Sincerely, Steve Gerber. Yeah, I definitely noted that as well. Other than that, there were a couple of things that I wrote down. One of which is I really enjoyed the celebration on page 30, where it's after they have defeated the turd-licking weasels, And the Hulk says, Snake men don't get up! Hulk and friends win fight! (laughs) Son of Satan says, I could hardly have put it more succinctly, Emerald One. And Luke Cage says, Big words don't matter, Hulk. What counts is we laid low a bunch of the slimiest scum that ever was. And shoot, if that don't make me feel so So
1: fine. (laughs) (laughs) I enjoy that. It's it's not good, but I love it. So fine. So fine. (laughs) So like S-O-O-O.
0: Yep. And so I enjoyed that. I think I might have to give my nod for favorite dialogue, though, to page 22. Because as I said, in general, Jack Norris did a good job in this issue. But we did get reminded that he is still Jack Norris. After the rescue, the defenders are back at their apartment. They have not yet found out that Penny's is the bad guy. They're waiting for Nighthawk to return and inform them of that. And he is talking to Val and he says, You sure you're okay now, Barb? You've been through so much. And she says, "I, I appreciate all you've done, Mr. Norris, but remove your hand from me.
1: Yeah, they're sitting on the couch together and he's kind of got his arm around her yeah. trying to comfort her and she's just like... Eh, maybe dude. trying to comfort her. Yeah. Dude.
0: Maybe doing the just like, oh, yawn, put his arm around her.
1: No worse, like, oh, you've been through a traumatic experience. Yeah, let, yeah. Let me you need, make you feel m- yeah. better. Ugh. Ugh. Ugh, fucking Jack.
0: Norris. Mm. I appreciate his Nazi punching. He definitely did the best job he's done in the few issues that we've seen him in, but... Still a shit. Still a shit. Yeah. <laughs> In this issue, who was the worst offender?
1: This was not that hard for me. I had to go with uh, Mr. Oops. I didn't realize my company was trying to start a race war to make money. Kyle Richmond.
0: <laughs> yep, I had the same thing. I think we've talked about it a fair amount. Yeah, I had a very distant backup of Clea, which, as we talked about, she did a bad job triaging the rescue. Not her fault. That could be placed on Steve, perhaps. but Still freaked out by
1: that browser history. Yeah,
0: I, <laughs> I guess so. But the obvious choice for Worst Offender is Kyle, and we've spent a fair amount on it. I'm glad he is aware that he has been negligent at this point, but that doesn't excuse it. He's going to go off and get his head straight, hopefully do a better job running his company in a responsible
1: way. But yeah, it's Kyle. Mm -hmm. Best Defender. Best Defender. I had the Son of Satan. As did I, Damon Hellstrom. Yeah, rescued people. Yeah. Got his horses back. Uh huh. Used science and magic. Yeah. Way to go. Yeah,
0: maybe shrunk them all down to the size of a horse's head so they could slither through a tunnel. Maybe so. Probably. Hmm. He did a great job. I like the things that he said. (laughs) Said big words. He said big words. The Hulk went, huh? I could have, I could hardly have put it more succinctly, Emerald One. Yeah, and then Luke Cage says, Big words don't matter, Hulk.
1: Well, it's cause Hulk was confused after
0: <laughs> Hellstrom's Speech Hulk says, huh? I was trying to describe do you know who Brian Blessed is? Mm, nope. Do you remember the movie Flash Gordon? Mm-hmm. He was the leader of the bird people in that. Mm. He's got a big beard. I I was trying to describe him to Lisa the other night, but what I said is, he talks big. And I stand by that as an accurate description. She was like, what do you mean he talks big? Whatever. are are you having a facial? It's like, no, that is actually exactly what I meant to say. He talks big. I don't know how to put it better than that. Give me an example of big talk. Big talk about bears. Uh, See, it's not about anything. It's the way that he talks is big. It's like this boisterous and quasi-Shakespearean, like... Aha! Yes! Jesus. That is how we interact with one another. Ha ha ha. I clasp your arm in friendship. Oh,
1: no. Yeah, he talks big. Wow. That's that, some big talk. My right ear is closer to you than my left ear. <laughs> it hurts now. I'm sorry. You, a, you demanded an example. Thank you for that example. <laughs> I'll be
0: more careful with my demands in the future. See that you are. Now you, like Kyle Richmond, have learned a lesson. Oh. <laughs> I don't feel comfortable
1: with that comparison. (laughs) Ah, nor should you. What was your favorite panel? The art in this was was nice. There was a lot of good things to choose from. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to have to go with the spread on page 26 to 27, the Donnybrook with the whole team beating up the turd-looking shit weasels. I agree, and I had that as one of mine. Although, I must say, it had the flashes you liked so much. It had
0: the flashes that I liked. It had a lot of interesting action it seems strangely sparse there's a lot of negative space that it works okay in terms of the layout but i i feel like it's kind of skimping on the background uh, in a way that that doesn't okay it just seems more spread out than a lot of battle scenes that we've normally seen it's not bad certainly but it's different in a way that i was like oh okay that's that's
1: okay It's it's a lot less detail than we're used to but it does leave it so that you can See the things happening, like the Hulk throwing one of the shit weasels into the whatever that is, that machine. Right. We were talking earlier about whether it's, like, a paper shredder, which I really
0: hope that it is. Oh, man. I mean, that makes it kind of grisly, but I fucking hate these turd-licking shit weasels. And, yeah, if he's getting thrown into a giant paper shredder, I would be fine with that. Uh, Or if it's, like, their pipe organ. It's probably the organ. Probably. We were listening earlier to the song Popcorn. It's confusing. It's a good song. Mm-hmm. You don't like it? It's interesting. All right. Yeah, and I think we've maybe just been spoiled by the giant two-page spread fight scenes that we would get in, say, a new Teen Titans. Like, it's different than the Perez layout. It's not bad, and I did have it as one of my favorites as well. But, yeah, like I said, I think we've been a little bit spoiled by Perez and the Teen Titans stuff for fight scenes. Different different animal. Agreed. What did you have as your primary favorite? There were a couple that I really liked. One of them was... The reveal of Elf with a Gun. Mm-hmm. It has an impact. It is a jarring panel that is exactly what it says. It is a, a leering Christmas elf holding a gun.
1: I had that as a, on my list as well, actually. And I think maybe my favorite is
0: a panel that is Daredevil's view, as it were, using his radar sense of the battle scene with Valkyrie. And it's just all done in reds and yellows and oranges. That is kind of the primary thing around it is the concentric circles of his radar sense. And it's really cool looking. It's like almost like a heat vision type image. I think that one's actually my favorite. Eh, nah, Alpha the Gun's my favorite.
1: All right, Alpha the Gun.
0: <laughs> well, that brings us to we've had a number of different suggestions for the Wong things, and I, I usually forget them all. And this is no exception, but I am looking through them, and Brad Reed submitted. So long. Farewell. Avidasein, Goodbye. Mm. Which is our fun way of saying, hey, what was Wong doing? In the year of our Lord, 1975, and the month of our Lord, July. So long. Farewell. Avidasein, Goodbye. What you got?
1: Yep, that's what Wong said to Dr. S on his way out on one of his many excursions. As previously discussed, Wong has uh, more than a passing interest in the natural world. Sure. Turns out, giant fan of koala bears. Ooh, who isn't? Don't know. But Do you know that they have
0: thumbprints that will, are hum- close enough to human that they will fuck up crime scenes? <laughs> it's adorable. Isn't it?
1: <laughs> so Wong headed Down Under. Okay. Um, to take part in a project of which uh, he, he has invested and, and become part of, which is uh, what to... Do with all these koala bears that you know people get them when they're they're, they're babies and they're cute and they're cuddly and then they grow they... up and they're still cute and they're cuddly, but then they're just like eating all your eucalyptus and generally being oh, bad mans my eucalyptus, people... Corey! Right? I don't want them eating all my eucalyptus. and I so, need that shit. So they just turn them out onto the streets, and <sighs> that's terrible. So <sighs> so Wong has created a koala bear uh, rescue society. You know, or he co created. He's down he's down there to help get the non profit off the ground, raising funds and whatnot. And so one of the ways that he does this is by organizing a large cricket competition.
0: Oh shit, Corey. Yeah. Do we have the same the
1: same one? <laughs> no, we
0: don't, but man, did I want to.
1: <laughs> Who else is involved in this cricket competition? So funny you should ask, and also <laughs> The I, I learned some interesting things about cricket in, in my research for this project, oh. <laughs> one of which is that there are they're, uh, ranks of the, the people on the various cricket teams, uh-huh. and... The guy that uh, that Wong was able to basically get on board with this project on the ground floor, and the reason for this was because uh, it was it was this person who was an Englishman, famous famous cricketer, oh. it was his debut, though, on, on the cricket scene, international cricket oh, scene. on the test or. cricket? Yeah, exactly. So there was a test match. This person later went on, um, several years later, to become the captain of England. Oh, really? Yeah, the cricket team. Oh, okay. Not the captain of all England. It didn't specify. It just said captain of England.
0: Does that mean Captain Britain? Oh, I don't know. Maybe.
1: Anywho, Wong having made the acquaintance and forming a good friendship with uh one Graham Gooch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was the whole reason I wanted to use his name. There is no
1: way that guy doesn't have the nickname the Gooch. Yep. So Wong befri- befriended the Gooch, <laughs> and uh, the rest is history.
0: <laughs> way to go, Wong. Way to go, the
1: Gooch. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> not making this up. Here's the
0: thing. A lot of people probably don't need to look it up. I know that <laughs> cricket is a popular sport. There's probably a lot of people who are like, oh, Graham Gooch? Yeah. And can yeah. say that without giggling and without thinking about him being called the Gooch. <laughs> and what a great name that is. Captain of England. Oh, boy. Wasn't the Gooch also the name of the dude who bullied Arnold on different strokes? Oh, I can't remember the details of that long ago. Okay. go. Yeah. Of that long ago? That long ago. (laughs) Well, I think the reason that Wong decided to head off to Australia was because Wong needed a little vacation after his vacation. Because Steve was still feeling kind of drained and groggy after his experience with the turd licking shit weasels. Mm -hmm. And he still couldn't like teleport and he was really kind of playing it up. So he's like, Wong, we need to go get away from it all. We need a vacation. And so Wong's like, okay, fine. I was going to go on my own vacation, but okay, we'll go on vacation together. So they went down to Disney World. And Steve was just like, oh, I'm still so tired. I can barely move around. Wong, will you carry me? Oh, gosh. And Wong (laughs) was like, no, Steve, I'm not going to carry you. He's like, but I'm so tired. He's like, Steve, you have a levitating cloak, but I don't want to use it. And so Wong finally, and much to his relief, was like, okay, good, look, here, Steve, here in, we'll go to Tomorrowland in Disney World, and they have just installed the People Mover, which is just like a big moving sidewalk. So Steve was like, fine, I would rather that you carried me, Wong, but I can stand here like a big boy. And Wong was like, thank you, Steve, you're doing a great job. But then Steve was just like, Wong, we need to put these everywhere so that I can travel all over the world this way. And Wong was just like, Sure, why don't I just build you a whole miniature little world for you to travel around? And Steve was like, Thank you, that would be great. (laughs) And Wong was like, I'm kidding, we're not going to do that. Well, I think you should. And then Wong said, Well, why don't you write a letter and tell somebody about that? So... That is what Steve did. He wrote a letter to Disneyland <laughs> mm. and later that month they started working on Epcot Center. <laughs> which in many ways is a wow. tiny miniature version yeah. of the world that Steve could be people moved around.
2: Well good job, so, Steve.
0: Good job, Steve. Good job, <laughs> Wong. And so Wong farewell, Afida saying goodbye. Speaking of So Wong farewell, Afida saying goodbye, mm. Corey, you are going on a big trip soon. Yes. Corey is going to be in Southeast Asia for the next several months. So, I hope you have a wonderful time. Thank you. It is a working trip, I believe, yes? For the most part, yes. We are going to try to do some long-distance recording, but there is going to be an interruption somewhat. Here's how we're going to try to handle that. We're going to, as I said, try to, but there's a 14-hour time difference, and Corey is going to be working a lot, so I'll try to keep uh, the interruptions as minimal as we can, but... I myself am going on vacation, and so we are going to miss a couple of weeks in late February. Just so you know, so you're aware, if you want to pause the Patreon donations, I totally understand. We're going to try to be posting more Patreon content in general, but that's between you and your god. And Aquaman. (laughs) And Aqualad. (laughs) Oh yeah, Aqualad. Yeah. But I did want to let you know, one of the things we are going to do... Corey, I think, is going to try to record most of these with us, but there's going to be some interruption. Part of what's going to happen is for the next several or some upcoming several of the New Teen Titans episodes, Lisa is going to be joining me and we are going to be going over the Spotlight on the Teen Titans miniseries that we've talked about a lot that has the solo issues centering on the members of the team uh, or four of the members of the team and I think that'll be a lot of fun and it'll be good to cover that stuff and yeah I think we're gonna hit the first one of those next week and then in a couple of weeks Cory and I are gonna try our first remote recording which will be Giant Size Defenders number five (laughs) yeah so we'll see how that goes but just so you know if there is an interruption in you receiving your content that is why and Corey, have a, have a great time. I will do my very best. I would consider it a personal favor. And thank you, listeners. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland.gmail.com. At you can leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcatcher you use. We've gotten some new ones recently that uh, are very heartwarming. Always nice to hear people say nice things about us. It's the only way that the word is getting out about us is people saying nice things about us to each other or in general. And I... Really appreciate that. We don't do any advertising, so you are our advertising network, and thank you for doing it. If you would like to give us some money, you can do that as well. I wish you would. It's uh, patreon.com backslash ttwasteland. Yeah, we just put up a Turbo Teen and Automan episode that you might enjoy, so you can check that out there, and there's some... Old Drug Awareness and another one about uh some Wonder Woman. Backup stories that Wonder Girl appeared in that uh that you might enjoy, and I think we will be putting up more content soon, or at least I will be trying to. Um and yeah, just in general you can check out our Facebook uh if you look up Tighten Up the Defense, we will be there. If you say it three times into the mirror, then we will appear behind you and murder you. That's not true. Pub fine. No murder. That's our solemn promise. Yeah, there we go. Corey, what's our other solemn promise? Mm. A big wet crunch with In every, every punch. punch. That's right, I forgot. Thank you listeners. Indeed, thank you. Goodbye. Bye. And- Captain Marvel in the Big Bang. Calling Captain Marvel. This is Spaceship 49. We have intercepted a message from Nitro headquarters. What's that creep up to now? The message reveals a plot for a big blow-up.
1: The biggest yet. Must be an attack on Fort Knox. Nope, that's not it. Either way... (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to set a trap.
0: Meanwhile. (laughs) I'll blow myself a (laughs) hole in the middle of the ocean. So big, it'll flood the world.
1: Nitro, look. Captain Marvel is escorting that ship.
0: Must be carrying valuable cargo. Let's follow him first. Look, the side of the mountain is opening up. And Marvel's turning back. The ship was probably on remote control. Let's capture that ship and get the treasure.
1: Thought bubble. Ha! They're taking the bait. And a thought bubble.
0: Later, inside the mountain. Mmm! We've got <laughs> enough Hostess Twinkies to last.
1: a month! Wow! Golden Sponge Cake with creepy feeling inside. That will keep Nitro busy for a while. I knew he'd get a big bang out of Hostess Twinkies. Now, to blast his headquarters. Mmm, chomp, chomp.
2: (laughs) What what is he going to (sighs) do? You
0: You get get a big big delight delight in every bite of Hostess Hostess Twinkies.
1: (laughs) I don't know why they don't pay us for this.
0: They really should. I mean, that makes me hungry for some Twinkies. Yeah. I know I'll get a big delight with every bite of them. Yep. We did a great job. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome.